Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. On today's 165th episode of The Thriller Zone, I'm happy to introduce you to a longtime fan and friend of the show, Mr. Terrence McCauley. Terrence kicks off season six with a discussion about his latest thriller, Chicago 63. Terrence, as you'll quickly see, is an engaging guest, a prolific writer in not one, but three genres, but he's also a podcast host and just an all-around nice guy. So let's get to it. Season six and Terrence McCauley on The Thriller Zone. Something I wanted to make sure I uh, said to you this week because I was thinking about this as I was preparing. It's a, um, it's a, it's a blessing and a curse. It's a, it's all good. And I thought <clears throat> if someone wanted to know how to react or act in getting in touch with a podcast for future um, sharing of their books, it's your example, and here's why. You do something really uh, amazing. You sent me a couple of your books, just sent them. You didn't, you didn't ask, you didn't say, Hey, can I be there? You just said, Hey, here's a few books. Mm -hmm. Let me know when I can get on. And the other thing is you didn't hassle me forever. So, oh. so I really, I really appreciate that. <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah. You know what? This is all about building community and you're doing that. I'm trying to do that because as you know, writing can be a really lonely pursuit. And yeah. um, you also, when you're trying to help, you don't want to be goaded into it like a beast of burden. You want to be <laughs> able to do it when you can do it. And, uh, you know, browbeating somebody just doesn't work. You know, and it's so funny because you're from Brooklyn, right? Uh, the Bronx. The Bronx. Sorry. Okay. I'm from the continental United States, Brooklyn, Queens. <laughs> they're all in the islands someplace, but yeah. <laughs> Oh my we have a sibling God. rivalry with our fellow boroughs. That is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And it's they're you know, having, near Europe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> having lived in uh, Manhattan uh, on two different tours of duty on business, and I know that I I I fully appreciate that um, explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, my point is, uh, you would have all the right in the world because that's that's one of the things I love about New Yorkers. They're like, boom, in your face. They tell it like it is. They want something. They ask it and they go for it. Now they're not a holes about it. They're just like, hey, this is what I need. I'm going to do it now. Are you you're not interested? Okay, great. We'll pass on it and we'll be another time. Anyway, I've made that right. point. So welcome, welcome to the Thriller Zone, Terrence McCauley. Thank you, my friend. A really great, uh, great opportunity to be here. Finally, after we've known each other for so long. Yeah, no, it's insane. So accept my humble apologies. <laughs> That's right. But folks, if you don't know Terrence, he's an award-winning, best-selling novelist of, I mean, look, thrillers, crime fiction, uh, westerns. And let me roll, run down just a couple of things. Author of the University series, Charlie uh, Doherty series, uh, Aaron McKay series, and the Jeremiah Halstead series. Now, I want to start out of the gate with this question because you're one of the few people I know, Terrence, that is doing this. You're writing in multiple genres. So it's a two-part question. You know I'm famous for that. The first part is, how did you come to that? 
doing multiple genres? And secondly, and I know it's a loaded question, but do you have a favorite among those? Sure. I was uh, fortunate enough to uh, have a couple of friends of mine who loved to drink coffee back in 2008, and they got a, a sleeve uh, on one of their coffee uh, orders that said, looking for the next great crime writer contest on True TV back when that was still around. It was Court oh, wow. TV at the time. So I had a book that I had been working on for a long time. It was Prohibition, set in 1930s New York, which combined my love of everything New York and also everything from the 1930s. So I uh, submitted it and it kept going on and on through the competition until one day I hear from them that I won. And I was selected out of 200 other books. And so that was the validation I needed because I loved writing. So I was happy and I thought the world was my oyster. They were uh, going to carry it in Barnes and Noble True TV, which it became at that time, was then a Warner Brothers property. So they said we might be willing to turn it into a movie or a series. I was over the moon. Yeah. Then what happened? Borders went out of business because they were the people who were going to carry the book and everything kind of fell apart. So uh, that was a real heartbreak for me. But I stuck with it because I'm a determined, hard-headed Irishman. So I wrote a sequel to the book that nobody else wanted. And um, that was also set in 1931, New York. And that was the beginning of the Charlie Doherty series. And I stuck with it. I uh, found smaller publishers who were willing to work with it. And that led me to uh, Polis Books, run by Jason Pinter. And he said, I love your stuff, but I'm looking for a... Uh, more of an action thriller. Do you have one of those in mind? I had always been a big fan of that genre. So yeah. I wrote the first book of the university series, which is Sympathy for the Devil. Got an agent. They negotiated that deal. And then my agent at the time said, well, what, what else are you working on? And I said, well, I don't know. I've got a Western that I haven't, that I wrote, but I don't think there's a market for it. And he said, one of my best friends is publishing Westerns over at Kensington. Why don't you give it to me? So I did. And so that is how my Western career started. I wrote that book completely on spec and uh, because I just love the genre and I like to challenge myself as an artist. So that's how I wound up with the uh, with being in three different genres. And I've been honored to be able to do it for as long as I have. And that second part of that question, do you have a favorite among those? My secret favorite is the 1930s stuff. Um, I yeah. love all my genres for different reasons. I love all of my characters, whether my name is on the cover or not, But because yeah. uh, I do ghostwrite for some other series. But I do love the 1930s. I love that era. I love the clarity of it. I love the complexity of it. It was a far more interesting era than we think from watching the Jimmy Cagney movies or the Edward G. Robinson movies. Those were all great but they were a lot more modern and a lot more complex than history tends to remember or that the movies portray. Because these are people who came out of the horrors of World War I, the, de yeah. the Depression was starting. So they had a lot of really interesting life experiences. And especially New York City back then, God, it was, it was a fantastic place to set a story. So those are my, that, that's my own personal sentimental favorite. But yeah. I never work on something without loving the genre I'm, yeah. I'm doing at that moment. Uh, forget about it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you, 
You know, you are, folks, I want you to know, Terrence is a prime example of what I think a true writer is because you see an opportunity, you take it. You have a vision, you build it. You have a dream, you chase it. And it doesn't matter the genre, doesn't matter the length, doesn't matter the publisher, doesn't matter who's involved or who's attached. Mm -hmm. And I have talked to a lot of people during this show and I have learned that the people who really are specific in their vision and clear in their focus and tenacious in their drive really make it. And you fill, you check all of those boxes. So a little golf clap for you, my, 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 oh, my thank buddy, you. Terrence. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, because I, I, I always say I'm a little too stupid to quit. And, um, you know, I... I continue on. And also, if, as long as I see growth, you know, I started off uh, in my teen years as wanting to be an illustrator. But when I was about 15 or 16, my talent kind of ebbed. And uh-huh. I knew that this wasn't for me, but I still wanted to tell stories. So I did not let that part of myself die, even though I went on to college and had office jobs. But I always wanted to be a storyteller. So I found another way to do that. And that was honing my craft as a writer. Well, Mission accomplished, sir. Mission accomplished. Yeah. Uh, so last year, let's let's jump around a little bit because you know I'm famous for that. So last year, your Blood on the Trail won the silver. Am I going to say this right? Falcon or Falchion? Falchion Award. Falchion Award for Best Western. Now that's impressive enough. But your latest novella, Chicago '63, which is Terrence, as you know, this is about the time that I pick up the book and I go right here. This is we're going to be talking about. But as you can see, I don't have it. Right. Yeah, because it's only an ebook now. We're uh, we're in the process of printing them up now. But I know that you're going to autograph and send me a copy, and I'll add it to my personal library. Yep, you're already on the list for a hardcover. <clears throat> Thank you. But Chicago 63 is a fictional account of a plot to assassinate President Kennedy back in November of 63. Right. So uh, I want to shoot out of the gate so that we make sure that the people who uh, have short attention spans or get bored or uh, finish their commute early or something and tune right. this out and forget to come back, make sure they know about your book. So I want to talk about your your main character, Secret Service Agent Abraham Goldman, which, by the way, I love this guy. I like his attitude. I like his drive. I like the way he goes. You know, he in a in a in a place of diversity or adversity, rather diversity, too, but bad adversity. He goes, mm-hmm. you know what? I, I have this instinct that says blank and I'm going to I'm going to tee all this up for you to tell the story. But I want to tell you what I appreciated about it. And he said, as he's guarding the president of the United States, you know what? Uh, I'm going with my gut instincts here and I'm not going to worry about the fact that maybe somebody else is arguing with me. So I want you to go. And tell me what makes this guy different from other agents. And so that's big. What makes him different, especially Mm -hmm. in this time? So it's a perfect tee up. And what makes this fictional account uh, different from other assassination plots that we've read about in the past? Again, a two parter. So thank you for your patience in that. Of course, of course. Well, I mean, it is a fictionalized account of an actual plot that did happen. Um, It was a a group of people who were looking to assassinate President Kennedy while he was going to be in Chicago in early November, November 2nd, for the Army Air Force game. And they were going to assassinate him on the way to the game as he was turning off of a highway. This sounds familiar. Uh And it was a very slow turn. 
And that was where they were going to assassinate him, which was much like what happened later, three weeks later, in Dallas, 1963. Yep. So that part, when I was doing the research into this, I said, God, this is fascinating. And the reason why we know about the plot was because the real-life Secret Service agent, Abraham Bolden, with a B, I changed uh -huh. his name, went forward, heard about this when he worked in the Chicago office of the Secret Service and brought it to the Warren Commission in 1964. They didn't want to hear about it. They did not want to know of any similarities to Dallas. And the poor man was not only ridiculed, he also was set up to go to prison for accepting a bribe a couple of years later. And he was in federal <laughs> prison for, I believe, about six years. And in 2022, President Biden commuted his sentence and exonerated him because he was that brave. So in my account, Abraham Golden is the protagonist. He is the, the hero of the plot. But there were only two agents that were assigned to from the Secret Service that were looking into these threats that really were coming in from all over throughout the Chicago area. So instead of having too many people in such a short novella, I made... It just him and have him drive the action of what was actually happening. So he does the investigation. There were two people that there were two uh, uh, Secret Service agents that were involved. I just boiled it down to one. Um, there were also local police that were involved. There were also some federal agents that were investigating. But it was basically the small office of the Secret Service that was handling all of this as the president was on his way there. So everything that happens in the book, I extrapolate a little bit, but most of it is factual, especially the parade route. And I've had people say, I can't believe that. They do their own homework and then they find out through the same sources I did that were written not recently, but some of them in 1974, they say, wow, this really did happen. That is kind of crazy, isn't it? I mean, not kind of, it's very crazy if you ask me. Right. I mean, it's you know, I do extrapolate on a lot. I do make links. But, um, you know, there were four Cubans that were in the that were uh, in the area. Two of them were arrested two escaped. They had high powered rifles in a hotel and they were brought in for investigation. And nobody knows what happens to those two. Arthur Valley was a real person and he did have ties to the guerrilla camps in the uh, pre uh, Bay of Pigs invasion days in Long Island and throughout the United States. And he was arrested that day, as I have it in the novella, with arms in his car, but not with weapons. It was just bullets. So it was, and the people who arrested him are the two police officers who were Chicago police officers. They went on to have colorful careers too. So, and they had some very interesting associations. So that's what I, I pulled everything together that actually happened and made a compelling story. I, I made some links. Like I said, I extrapolated a bit. Sure. But I definitely used uh, historical events as my uh, inspiration. I love the fact that you took reality and what I call you just bent it. Um, and there's another book I'm reading right now that has to do with bending time. I'm not going to go down that path because it's your show. <laughs> but it is uh, it, it has really made me to stop and think um, if you – Geez, I could go off on a tangent about parallel universes and bending time and so forth. And I think about the movie Interstellar and stuff like that. But right. when you, yeah, when you stop and you think about it within a blink of an eye, it's kind of like a movie I saw way back when I think it was Gwyneth Paltrow sliding doors at a single second. 
the world could have shifted and gone that way or shifted and gone that way. So what I love about what you did is you kind of opened our eyes to a point in time that if things had been just that much different, just fractionally different, it could be a whole different world we're living in, right? Right. And I think that's the reason why you have a lot of these theories that continue on. Uh, you know, some people call them conspiracy theories and they right. remain conspiracy theories until people actually do research into them. And then once you do see that maybe not the main event, but the tertiary characters that are involved, that's what if you do that kind of homework, you start to say, wow, maybe this isn't as crazy after all. And I've yeah. always had a love of looking into fringe ideas like ufos ancient aliens that stuff and most of it bigfoot most of the times i just i write that off i say there's a logical real world explanation for an awful lot of that um example a couple of years ago about 10 years ago now there was a huge sighting of flying rods um around public events and that was a big ufo thing well it turned out they were predator drones it was a perfectly real world explanation for it. We just didn't know the technology existed. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of real world explanations you can have for a lot of this phenomenon. But when you look at something like the Kennedy assassination and all of the secondary people involved, yeah. it becomes a little bit more believable that something was going on. And I don't think it was the stereotypical oak paneled office, people having cigars, chortling. I don't think that was it. But yeah. I definitely think it was probably a few bad actors who had a plan, kept it close, and unfortunately were successful. That's what I liked about this story is you made me, I mean, I would suspend as I do, as you do, as we all do when we're reading a book, we suspend our beliefs for a moment. But with this one, you can just, you don't have to fully suspend it. You can just hang your, uh, your thoughts on the nail behind you and go and, and go down that traveling that road and go, you know, this, this is so close to have be, have had, have happened. <laughs> Easier for you to say. Um, <laughs> Anyway, so I love that. Uh, I do wanted to ask you this. You have a fascination of the 30s. Do you also share a fascination with the 60s or was your fascination simply with the fact that this was a momentous moment, uh, a huge moment in time that you capitalized, capitalized on by fictionalizing? I have a love of history and I have a love of historical fiction. So I got used to researching uh, events that happened when I was doing my 1930s novels. My, um, my grandmother grew up in the same neighborhood as James Cagney. And she was always really emphatic about they were never friends. She said, I just knew him, but we, I knew him around from the neighborhood and he was a character. He was always getting into trouble. And I, that, that kind of honesty stuck, struck me back then because I was a little kid. She could have told me, oh, yeah, we were best friends. We hung out all the time. But she didn't do that. And people from that era didn't really exaggerate because I think that they had a, a capacity to understand that life gets complicated and interesting enough all on its own if you just tell the truth. So that kind of idea and that approach to her life experience made me love history. I wound up researching because, I, like I said, I love fringe ideas, uh, usually suss them out for what they are. But with the Kennedy stuff, it was fascinating. And I, and I kept digging into it. And the more I did, the more I realized this is an interesting part of American history in the 1960s. And especially when I had a character like Abraham Bolden in my book, he's golden. He yeah. actually did was the first African-American Secret Service agent to protect a president. And that was at Kennedy's insistence. 
So those kinds of details are fascinating to me. And that's what made me say, there's more than just research here. There's a, there's a good story that I can tell. First of all, I want to jump in here and say, I apologize. I called it Goldman. I wrote down Goldman. I was thinking golden. So thank you for not just smacking me upside the face and going, hey, Dave, <laughs> not only did you misspell my name when you were doing pre-advertising marketing for me, you used an A instead of an E, uh, a-hole. So why don't you just say anyway? You know, no, sometimes. Go ahead. I said, sometimes you're just moving so fast. You, you don't think so. My apologies. Don't worry about it. No, no, yeah. it's just, and, and I, so with him, I changed his name a little bit because A, I did fictionalize his character, but I wanted to keep it so that if people do Google what I wrote, and I do hope they will do their own research, sure. you'll see, God, this guy is a fascinating character in and of himself. And he has his own book, uh, Echoes from Dealey Plaza, that I suggest everybody take a look at. Fascinating <laughs> gentleman, really is. He's still with it, us, too. Insert book plug here. <laughs> hey, and speaking of, uh, I want to, I want to jump off a thing. You said a second ago about how people in that era didn't exaggerate or blatantly lie. I'm going to make that a two pronged attack. Mm -hmm. I'm having a conversation yesterday with the gentleman who's going to be on the show soon. Um, and, uh, John Lindstrom and we were, and we were talking over lunch about, you know, it's a shame what happened to decorum. And that, that shot us down a road about a conversation between my friends, Jonathan and Mark, who were at the lunch table. And we're like, yeah, whatever happened to that? And it made me think of that when you said people of that era w w looked at life differently. And it made me think the same thing. Like what happened to, and this is rhetorical predominantly, right. what happened to decorum? What happened? You know, w w there are certain presidents in our past, for instance, that have no decorum. We won't go down that path, but, right. and, and it just, it challenges me to say, why can't we bring a little bit of the class back to life in general and just be cla classier? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, no, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And I think that the, um, I think the advent of social media has hastened that decline in decorum <laughs> and treating people like they're human beings. Um, my grandmother and my father uh, all grew up in uh, very diverse neighborhoods back before they even called it diverse. It was just a bunch of poor people who did different things on the weekend. Some went to church on Saturdays. Some went to church on Sundays. Uh, yeah. Some didn't go at all. But everybody was in the same boat. And my grandmother had a piece of advice for me that's carried with me throughout my entire life. And that's treat people as you meet them. If they're good to you, you be good to them. And if they're not good to you, then you stay away from them. And that's, that's just the way it used to be. And, and people understood, especially in a place like New York City, we're all in this together. Yeah. Uh, you're living in the same neighborhood I am. You might have a nicer apartment, but we're all here. You got to take the five flights up to your apartment, just like I do. You yeah. shop in the same places. And I think that the impersonality of everything of modern day just makes people too familiar with themselves. And that's online. And, you know, you see people going to baseball games. They used to dress in suits to go to baseball games. And they used to dress to get on uh, airplanes. But then you look at it, and the airplanes used to be nicer. They used to be a really nice experience. I wouldn't wear a suit on a plane now. I mean, it would be ruined by the time you get there. Even if Dude, it's a puddle. You're taking the phrase right out of my mouth. This is exactly what I said yesterday. I said, what happened to getting dressed properly to go for a flight? Not that it's necessary, but 
Flying used to be an event, kind of be a classy event. Hey, I'm flying to such and such. Now you see people getting on in flip-flops and or or bedroom slippers and pajamas and wearing carrying their headphones or anyway, it's they we've kind of lost touch with decorum. Anyway, I'm beating that dead horse on your show, but um we need to bring that back. That's what I'm going to say. Bring decorum back, hashtag. <clears throat> yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, and we definitely need to treat people better. We need to treat each other better. And, and you know, I think you see people, they dress down, and I think that they've also dressed down their approach to life and their approach to their fellow human being. Um, you know, we vilify people we don't agree with. We, we're, we're terrible. We don't have discussions anymore. We have these firm beliefs that we stick to, like they're World War One trenches, and we won't give an inch. And look at what it's doing. It's, it's tearing apart the fabric of society, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And it's uh, it's a it's a nasty trend. Yeah, it certainly is. All right, let's get back to you. Your short stories have been featured in uh, publications like a Thug Lit, Shotgun Honey, uh, Down and Out Magazine, many other publications. You're you're mm-hmm. really prolific, and to to have created this body of work in such a short amount of time. And I'm going to ask a question that feels like my closing question, but it's not. What would be your best advice to writers? And I thought about this one. I'm like, man, look at this. He's hit a lot of the biggies. Well, what's your best advice to writers as they're trying to inch their way into one of these publications? You got any inside scoops for us? I would say don't try to write to a trend because the trend changes all the time. Um, If you feel like you've got a novel in you, try to write that novel as best you can in your own time but not with an open-ended deadline. Make sure that you don't just get crippled by analysis paralysis. Uh, Do your research, do your thinking, do your navel-gazing, but don't let it go on for too long. Start committing yourself to the paper and to the page, to the screen, because if you do that, then you're going to have eventually a product that you can look at, that you can bounce things off, that you can change and ultimately bring to market which is what publication really is. It's taking, it's creating a product and bringing it to market. For short stories, it's the same thing. If you hit a roadblock in your novel writing or you're not sure where you want to start, short stories are a fantastic way to do that, to, to break the ice, to get you into the habit of writing and training your mind to create a shorter, tighter story than you might find in a novel. So I always tell people, write, get it done, make it the best you can, and then be prepared for a lot of rejection because that is just part of this business. And for somebody who's not patient like me, I'm a very impatient person, that's a tough lesson to learn. But it's an essential one if you're going to have any success in this business. And it is a business. Isn't it funny how many times, Terrence, we talk to people amongst ourselves and outside this circle of the writing community, and they say, all right, if there's anything else you can do, you might want to do that because writing is probably one of the toughest adventures you could possibly do. So I find yeah. it interesting. And we, we really are gluttons for punishment in one sense. Now, we are. Yeah. As a member of, uh, let's see, New York City chapter of the Mystery Writers of America. How do you do? ITW, International Crime Writers Association, the Military Writers Society of America, and the Western Writers of America. You're You're in a lot of good company. Mm-hmm. What has been what's been some of the best lessons from being associated with this groups? Because a lot of people say, well, we all know that going to conferences is great. But I want to take it a step further and say, you know, belong to one of these or many of these organizations because of blank. And I'd love to hear your opinion. 
it's great to be able to have a sense of community, to be able to talk about the different war wounds all of the writers have in that genre, because it's it's a lonely enterprise to be able to start writing. It's, it's, I don't know if it's necessarily noble because no one's making you do it, but right. it's, it's definitely great to go to these conferences if you can swing it and um, get the kind of inspiration you can only get with people who get the joke. The same joke that we tell each other all the time when we start each day by sitting in front of the keyboard and, and starting to type away. Um, I, I found that when I was joined the uh, Western Writers of America, the amount of knowledge in that room was tremendous. Uh, you would think that these are just a bunch of people who read cowboy books and that's it. Yeah. The, the wealth of information and how incredibly well read my fellow writers in that genre are, are phenomenal. They could talk to you about crime novels, cozies. They could talk about different industries. It really opened my eyes to the fact that a lot of genres like Westerns or cozies get pigeonholed, but the audience base there and the, and the contributing writers to those genres is phenomenal. So I always say if someone can afford to swing it to go to a conference, give it a shot, um, but go with a plan. Don't just show up and say, I'm going to let lightning strike. Have a list <laughs> of people who you want to meet. And uh, try, don't I wouldn't say work the room, but have a plan of who you want to talk to and what you want to say to them when you do. I'm going to take exactly what you said and say, do work the room. Have you, if you got your notes in your pocket and you're, you're networking to make uh, future connections, then yeah, work that room. Also, I, you know, I, I, when I was reading about you and one thing I did not know, I did not learn until just recently is that you have your own podcast, which is spies, lies and private eyes. Right. on the authors of the air global radio network. And I believed I, I, I met the gal who runs that at, um, back, yeah, yeah, Pam at, uh, Bashikon this year, boy, she's got some energy, doesn't she? She is. She is something else. She is a force unto herself. Yeah, she is. And I couldn't believe, I mean, you're 60 plus episodes in and you and I both know how hard this gig is. We do it because we love it because we're not getting rich doing it. And right. how, how did this podcast come out for you and, and what's your favorite part of it? Well, Pam <laughs> wanted me to do one for a while, even though I wasn't blessed with the dulcet tones you have. I've got a Bronx accent that could cut glass. So um, <laughs> you sound like uh, Shadow Stevens and I sound like a dying barn animal. But um, I do. <laughs> I do it's it's my, my native French accent. But I do enjoy speaking to the authors at various stages of their career. Some of them are older than me, but this is their first book. Some of them have been bestsellers for 20 years. And what I try to do in my podcast is cover the writer's journey, no matter where they are in their publishing uh, life. And I've gotten the opportunity to interview some great people and be able to talk to them uh, about what was important to them when they were writing, the various influences they've had. And every once in a while, they'll give me some advice that I can pass along to my listeners and that's rewarding because everybody who tries to do this goes in with one idea of how they're going to get published and how they feel the publishing industry is going to treat them. And then once you get into it, you get into that cold water and you realize this is a whole different ball game. And so I think it's great to be able to pass on some of the wisdom that they've earned over their careers to different people. Yeah. Hey, by the way, New Yorkers say whole different. Southerners like me say whole nother. It's a whole nother right. thing, which makes no sense. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> All right. Before we wrap, I want to ask about a venture that our mutual friend Steve Stratton shared with me recently when he was down here in San Diego visiting. And I'd love to hear more about this company because I'm going to I'm going to act as though I don't know anything because I know very little. So tell me about Silverback Publishing. Yeah, Silverback Publishing is the uh, the brainchild of the great uh, James Apt. He's uh, also the force behind Best Thriller Books. He has a, amassed a lot of really great reviewers who don't just get the free books, look at them, and then wrote, write a glowing review. They delve into this industry, and they love their writers, and they love good stories. And I've never seen them um, review a book they didn't like, so they're not out there headhunting. They're actually there to promote good writing when they find it. Um, and James is actually the reason why Chicago 63 got published in the first place. I have a, it's part of a greater no, uh, trilogy that I want to tell from a cop's perspective of the Dallas shooting, the before event, the right after Roswell was arrested and then the pursuit for the shooters afterwards. So I was shopping a, a trilogy. I might have a, a publisher for it. Fingers crossed. But he said, you know, why don't you try something else that's a, a novel, novella, that, that would be more accessible to people rather than someone signing on for a three-book arc? And I said, all right, well, I do have that Chicago plot that I, it was going to be in the novel. But I, I knew that if I, when I wrote that novel, Abraham Golden would be there for about a quarter of it, and then he would disappear. And that's not fair to the character, and that's not fair to the reader. So I put it into a novella, and that was what Chicago 63 became. So then once that started getting uh, legs, uh, he's, we formed this group called uh, Silverback Publishing, where the idea is to use Chicago 63 as a test case to see how we can bring novellas to the general public. And it's going to be, and it is, a different experience. It's not just writing a book publishing a book and seeing where it lands. It's also about creating experience for the reader. And that means curated content. And we've been doing the interviews with a lot of experts like Steve Stratton over the last few months to give people a, a, a beautiful hardback book signed by the author and also curated content that explains the evolution of the idea. Because a lot of readers love to know, where did you get this idea from? What sure. made you want to write this book? And instead of just talking about it, they can be part of it. And we feel that it is a really nice way to reach a new audience and also to give authors a chance to get their work out there. Because not every idea is worthy of a novel, but chances are <laughs> writers have a, a novella in them, maybe a nugget of a story. And that's what we're going to uh, do our best to bring to market. Well, I love this idea because there's so many of us and I, my, my stories that I write start as novellas. I'll have this idea. I'll bang out about 10 pages. And then I think, you know, I got just enough gas in the tank to probably do a novella. And then I always have this conversation before I knew about you and others and, and just having a different attitude about publishing in general. Mm -hmm. oh, I'll put it on the back burner and see if I can flesh it out to a full 360 or whatever the number count uh, page count is at that time. But some, Sometimes, often, more often than not, that it doesn't go anywhere. But you go, man, I'd love to just get this story out. So, first of all, is it only open for novellas? Is that pretty, kind of kind of the key to it? 
Yeah, for this part, it is. Uh, until we have a proof of concept and then we feel that we're going to be able to do more, I'd love nothing more than to be able to be part of a full publishing group. I mean, because between me and Steve and, and a lot of the other authors who have shown interest, we have a wealth of experience and uh, bitter experience in some instances about how uh, about what to do and what to avoid. So we would love to be able to publish full-length novels, but for now, I think the novellas are a great way to introduce the company to a new audience, and it's also good for us to learn what we know and what we don't know. Uh, yeah. The known unknowns are, are the ones that always trip up enterprises like this. So um, we feel that the novellas are a great way to start. The experience of, of seeing curated content could appeal to some people. Sure. And there's, there's, we want to see where this journey takes us. And we've been happy with the results so far. Well, I love the idea. I'm going to support you guys in any way I can. Uh, maybe even you guys will let me get in on the fun and uh, throw one of my novellas at you. Please do. Um, but I thank you. I really love this idea. And I think I remember it's, I'm flashing back to James Patterson, love him or hate him. I happen mm -hmm. to have grown up really enjoying his reading. All right. Yeah. Uh, came out with an idea a few years back called book shots. And I always thought that was cool because I've, I do a lot of flight travel and I like to just pick up a book, maybe blow through something, uh, maybe on a short flight book shots mm -hmm. were perfect. Uh, of course you and I both know, we both read a lot of books for our podcast and, and, and our passion for reading, but sometimes uh, you, you just want a little something, you want a snack, you don't want a whole meal. So I applaud right. you guys uh, uh, famously and, and heartily for this idea. So, folks, once again, it's called Silverback Publishing. I'm going to assume it's silverbackpublishing.com. I don't have it right in front of me. Yeah, it is. And we also, uh, yeah, we figured that reader, reader cha uh, choices and reader tastes have changed over the last few years. You know, with like I said earlier, with the advent of social media, people are looking for something that's a little shorter and a little easier to get through. So it's yeah. also a great way for, for authors to introduce their greater body of work to someone who might not want to sit down for a 300-page novel, but it's a really great way to tell a tight story, and they can be part of an existing series or an independent book, whatever. But it's um, we're, we're excited about where it's heading. And we got some yeah. great reviews, thank God, about uh, Chicago 63. I.S. Berry reviewed it, gave, a, gave it yeah. a beautiful review. She's on the cover. And uh, Cheryl Head, a lot of people, uh, and Matt Coyle, a lot of great people gave us some awesome support. And uh, we're very grateful. Yeah, dude, I applaud you once again. Uh, this is the writing community taking the power into their own hands and going, hey, maybe I can't get published over here with the big five, we'll just call it, but at least I can get it in the hands of some people who are really passionate about the business of publishing, even if it's a novella. And everybody, listen, if you're a writer, you've got a novella in you for crying out mm -hmm. loud. We're talking about less than 50,000 words. And if you do... Uh, NaNoWriMo, as many of us do in uh, November, when you write 50,000 words in 30 days, if you're a writer, you can do that. If you can't do that, mm -hmm. then maybe you, you should do something else. Just an idea. All right. Once again, it's Silverback Publishing. And as we close, I, I want to do a variation on the theme because you're so good. You're such a great interviewee and interviewer. But I want to, I want to, you know, my standard close is best piece of writing advice, but I want to know, because you've already touched on another uh, adjunct to that, what's one of the biggest lessons 
you've learned since becoming a full-time author? Because I've watched you from a distance for almost three years now, and I've never seen anybody so consistent. And you don't sit around, oh, I've got like four more days. No, you just bang it out. So what's that best lesson you've learned? To keep working at it. Um, and I you have to find the, the thing that's going to keep your backside in the chair and your fingers on the keyboard. And there's a lot of different ways of doing it for me. I write out on the porch. I'm not there now. I'm in my house, but I have a screened-in porch and a, a windowed-in porch. I will admit I smoke my cigars. That's what keeps me in the chair and writing. But staying with it, there's there's a bunch of different ways that you can learn how to craft a story, that you can follow structure to do research. But ultimately, it you won't have anything to sell. You won't have anything finished until you finish it. And it's just to keep at it, keep banging away at it, and be. And once you get that habit of writing and that commitment to the project that you're working on, beautiful things happen. And yeah. you know you have to do it in order to accomplish it. You can't expect it to happen by osmosis or a strike of luck. It's it's staying in the minds and plugging away at it and making it the best you possibly can. And I'm going to put a colorful little exclamation point there and to say, trust the process and trust your instincts. Trust that passion that lives within you to make you even think you want to do it. A lot of yeah. times we have all that judgment voice, not to get off on a tangent here, but I'm going to do it because it's my show, damn it. Um, damn right. But you, you, we get, we get caught up in that voice that goes, oh, what if it's not good enough? What if it really sucks? Who cares? There's a lot of other things in life that we go after that fall apart and we, we don't go, well, I wish I could have learned to drive a car, but I backed out wrong. Okay. Right. So my point is just allow for the passion. So once again, that is great advice coming from Terrence McCauley. And if you want to learn more, go to Terrence. That's two E's in Terrence, by the way, McCauley.com. And I, we just want to send a great big old Thriller Zone love to uh, Dutchess County. And I did want to ask you, what made you leave the big city for the, and I got a pretty good idea because I've seen a plenty of Instagram in your new life. How, <laughs> why, why, why out there and how you liking it? Uh, well, it, my wife is from this area. She grew okay. up in Millbrook. Um, okay. It's funny, she's Guatemalan American. And when everybody says, learns that one of us is from Millbrook and one of us is from the Bronx, they assume she's from the Bronx. I'm like, no, she grew up in horse country. I'm the city rat. Um, but she grew up uh, right near Millbrook. And then we moved to an adjacent area here in Dutchess County, uh, Amenia. It's uh, right near uh, the Connecticut border. Okay. And it's been, it's, it's, we've always had a weekend house here since we got married. And we've been, um, we've been up here since COVID happened. When I was, I had a regular job at that time. Uh, they, they suspended operations. So we worked remotely. We moved up here. I started writing full time and then we've been able to uh, stick with it ever since. So it's been a it, it's a quiet but beautiful part of the world. And there's a lot going on up here. So it was a tough transition from the city because I grew up there my whole life. Yeah. But I uh, it, it's beautiful up here. It, it, it's really uh, and the, the people who live up here are quality people. Yeah. And, you know, the peace and harmony of countryside's pretty nice backdrop for writing. And if you need a you get a hankering, as we say in the South, if you get a hankering to, for a little city life, you just jump on a train and go right or car or whatever. But then just go in for a little injection. Well, once again, this is so cool. I'm so glad you took the time. Um, I'm, I do apologize. Once again, it's taken so long, but this is what tenacity does. You, you stuck in there and here we are. And man, I couldn't wish you 
more luck. And I would be holding up. I'm just going to put the copy of Chicago 63 on the screen. And by the way, who designed this cover? Because I love it. Uh, a great artist by the name of uh, Christian Storm. He did Joe Clifford's covers. I think he's wonderful. Um, I, I hope to God he's able to do all of my books, whether I self-publish them or I have another publisher do it. Yeah, I told him what I wanted. I told him what I envisioned. And God, he just exceeded my expectations like you wouldn't believe. And he also yeah. did a great job with, with getting it done on time with all of the endless feedback from people. Just a quality artist, and, and I highly recommend him. His, awesome. his name is Christian Storm. He did a great job with the cover. Well, big kudos to Christian. I have been uh, able to communicate with him, so he, he seems like just a solid dude. Once again, Terrence, thank you so much for your time on the show. It's been a hoot. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity, and thank you for what you're doing for the community. It's It helps an awful lot. It is my pleasure. On next week's Thriller Zone, I'm beyond excited and perhaps a wee bit anxious to welcome an author you're going to be amazed with. Terry Hayes has written an epic novel, The Year of the Locust. And when I say epic, I mean at nearly 800 pages, this book will keep your head swimming, your pulse racing, and the pages turning for days on end. It's an amazing read, and you're going to love meeting the author of I Am Pilgrim. Before I go, I want to remind you to subscribe to our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash thethrillerzone. And say, if you're an author who'd like to appear on the podcast, swing by thethrillerzone.com and register. That's it for now. I'm your host, David Temple, and I'll see you next Monday, right here in Season 6 of The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel, Grand Theft AI, by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.